0: This is The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. In this episode, Bill Browder, author of the global best-selling book, Red Notice. My first exposure to Bill Browder came in 2006 at a hedge fund conference in Nice in the south of France. He was one of the star attractions, his Russia focused Hermitage Fund hailed as the best performing money fund in the world at that time. Confident, brash, outspoken, the Browder I saw on the stage had the audience in the palm of his hand. He was riding a wave of the best kind of popularity, the adoration of his peers. The Bull Browder I met in London this week was rather different. Self-contained, professional, to the point of being a little guarded, he struck me as one of that most rare of our species, a man who's on purpose. It's all hardly surprising because Browder has been through the mill and back in the dozen years since I last saw him. The change is for the better. In two thousand and nine, Browder's life did change dramatically when his Russian lawyer Sergei Magnitsky was jailed on trumped-up charges. And when this thirty-seven-year-old lawyer refused to break, and that got coming after eleven months of torture, he was chained to a bed and beaten to death by eight prison guards. As you'll hear in what follows. That event put Brada onto a different path, one which accelerated in 2015 with the publication of his global best-selling autobiographical book, Red Notice.
1: I'm not an author. I'm a, I'm a hedge fund manager, and a, and and then became a political activist. and And this book has been a, a sort of wild bestseller all over the world. I think we've now got 26 different languages of uh, red notice and and um, it really spoke to people it touched people um, it's i mean it's it's not a finance book it's not a politics book it's it's kind of a, a detective story and uh, and so a lot of people who don't really like to read nonfiction found it very pleasant to read because the moment basically I, I tell anybody who's hesitant. I'm saying just read the first five pages, and it just grabs you by the scruff of your neck, and you won't be able to put it down until you finish reading the book.
0: And it opens eyes in
1: a field which we hear so much about at the moment. Well, I I would say that the the most common reaction to my book um, is that people knew that Putin and Russia were bad. They always knew that beforehand, but they had no idea how bad. And what my book does is it really just lays out in granular detail just the incredible permeation of corruption and, and, um, and ugliness in, inside the Russian system. Stuff that goes so, so far beyond people's worst expectations that uh, it really changes people's views of Putin and Russia. So what do you do now? I'm a full-time justice activist. I'm working full-time on the Magnitsky justice campaign. We have uh, one primary objective, which, which is to get legislation passed in all countries around the world called the Magnitsky Act, which will freeze the assets and ban the visas of the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky and the people who commit other atrocities around the world in name to punish them in Sergei's name. And this is my, my life's work now.
0: Not surprisingly, it's a story that fascinates South Africans. I've been referred to the book by quite a few people in the upper echelons of financial services, both in that country and abroad. Because less than a year ago, Russian President Vladimir Putin cast a long shadow over that country. Then-South African President Jacob Zuma spoke publicly and often about his affection for Putin, and uh, he even fired cabinet ministers who refused to follow what was quite transparently Putin's direction, specifically over the unaffordable, unnecessary Russian nuclear power deal that Zuma was ever determined to
1: push through. It's a tale that Browder has been following rather closely. Um, I know a lot about the country because South Africa, probably uh, my favorite country in the world. I I started traveling there um, back in 1996. I went there for a trip. I had been sort of um, tugged there by, at the time, my my wife. Mm We were staying at the Mount Nelson Hotel in Cape Town. And um, I had had a prejudice against South Africa not having any interest in going there because of all the... Ugliness connected to apartheid. Every American was sort of taught during the apartheid era that there was something really wrong with South Africa, and so I didn't really want to go there. And I showed up there, and I thought, God, this is the most unbelievably great place I've ever been, and and I I just fell in love with the country. And since then, um, I've been going back. I've been going back every year, sometimes twice a year. I ended up buying a house, um, and it became sort of my second home and uh unfortunately um as the russians as putin started to chase me and try to have me imprisoned um i got a warning from uh senior people at the minister level in the south african government um, that it probably wasn't safe for me to travel there anymore because of zuma's close relationship with putin and so i stopped traveling there four years ago which is a great heartbreak for me because i love the country and and uh Love the nature and love the people, and, and it was really a, a, a tough, a, a tough thing for me not to be able to go back there. With the change in government, well, I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what, what that means. Um, I mean, Putin is quite good at getting his his tentacles into people and situations, and so it probably isn't just Zuma at this point that was um, uh, compromised, and, and so uh, I've got to be very careful because um, you know, while I love the country, I'm not, I don't want to end up. You know, if, I get, if I end up getting sent back to Russia um, because I wanted to go on a great vacation to South Africa, that, that's a death sentence for me. And that's what the book's all about, Red Notice. Just explain what a Red Notice is. So a Red Notice um, uh, describes this, something called the Interpol Red Notice, the Inter- Interpol, the International Police Organization issues these arrest warrants called red notices. And basically any country in the world that's a member of Interpol, which includes almost every country in the world, if they're after somebody, um, they issue a red notice. And then if some, that if the person they're after then crosses a border um, and gives the passport at the border crossing, then it gets flagged um, on the system, on the Interpol system, and then the person gets arrested. and um, it's, it's it's you know, in 98% of the cases, it's a totally, like, useful, legitimate crime-fighting system. But there's a lot of countries, like Russia, that abuse Interpol for political or, or criminal purposes. And in my case, um, after uh, a long and horrible story of, of uh, my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, being murdered and us co- uncovering a massive government corruption scheme that he was murdered for... Um, the Russian government has been abusing uh, Interpol red notices, and, and in my case, um, when I wrote the book, um, it was uh, uh, they—I think they had done two abuses of the—they had tried twice on the Interpol system. By now, and here we are, September 2018. They've now made seven attempts to abuse the Interpol system to have me arrested. Generally, a guy who's sitting in a brown uniform at some border somewhere. He doesn't know my story of, of you know, political struggle with Vladimir Putin. All he knows is that there's a, an arrest warrant for me, and so um, it can be pretty precarious for me to travel um, uh, because of this Russian attempt to have me arrested all the time.
0: We, we had a, a situation in South Africa <laughs> with a let's call him a colorful uh, entrepreneur uh, who's involved in the mining industry called Zined Motti, who was arrested last month in Munich. Uh, again through a red notice in Russia. He claims it is a, a member of the Russian mafia who
1: got the red notice issued. Is that possible? Well, I, I don't know the specifics of the story, but I can say it's it's not only possible, but it's probable that um, uh, if somebody is an, ends up in a business dispute with a high-powered Russian, that Russian can just go to um, the Russian Uh, bureau of interpol and give a bribe and get a person put on the system it's it's very easy and russia tends to do this very often with um, investigative journalists with opposition politicians um, uh, and with business people who have fallen afoul of the regime and so it's it's uh, it's something they do often it's something they do regularly and and uh Again, I don't know the details of this particular story, but, but it doesn't, wouldn't surprise me if it was a totally illegitimate uh, red notice.
0: So in your case, four years ago, you were tipped off that there was potentially a red notice that could be issued if you went to South Africa. Uh, what would have happened if, if you had gone to the country and Putin had managed or
1: Russia had managed to, to get this issued? Well, so if, if I had gone to the country and there was a red notice, um, one of two things will, could happen. Um, uh, the first is that, well, well, the first is I would be arrested. Okay, so that, that's a pretty much automatic. And then the question is, what happens to me after I'm arrested? And, and I have quite a bit of experience with this because it's actually happened. Um, uh, a couple months ago, I was um, in Spain and I was arrested on a Russian Interpol red notice. And in Spain... Um, I was able to um, tweet out the fact that I was being arrested as it was happening. And I even did a second tweet with a picture from the back of the police car as I was being taken to the police station. So by the time I had gotten to the police station, um, there was an absolute sort of viral frenzy of of concern about what was going to happen to me. And I don't know exactly how the Russians got the Spanish to to act so quickly, probably a bit of... uh, You know, some friendly backhanders were passed out in advance. But what I do know is that when this issue went global and viral, then 100 journalists called up Interpol, 100 more journalists called up the Spanish Minister of Interior, um, 100 more journalists called the British Foreign Office because I'm a British citizen. And by the time I got to the police station, I had only been sort of... incarcerated for two hours before I was released because it was such a international scandal that's the good outcome the bad outcome um, is that I sit in jail and um, uh, and in South Africa this could have happened where I get arrested I sit in jail and and, and as you know South African jails are, are not particularly nice and and at that point then Putin calls up his friend Zuma and says you know hey, you got one of, you got the guy I want and um, right, and please send him back and now South Africa in theory has a um, uh, judicial system that's solid and independent um, but it's also got a government um, that has been corrupt and so um, my fear is that uh, I mean, if, if it had gone through the judicial system I probably would have been released had it gone you know, through the political system I probably would have been handed over to the Russians and I should point out that if I was handed over to the Russians, um, this is not just an issue of me going to jail in Russia. This is an issue of me being tortured and killed in a Russian prison. And I don't say that casually and I don't say that lightly. This is exactly what happened to my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, who um, uncovered a massive government corruption scheme in uh, about 10 years ago. And uh, in retaliation for exposing it, he was arrested, tortured for 358 days, and killed at the age of 37.
0: That's the perfect segue for the meat of Browder's book, which exposes corruption on such a grand scale that it will cause anyone who reads it to think twice before entertaining any business or any other kind of relationship with the Russian elite.
1: The whole story hinges around... um, $230 million of taxes that we had paid to the Russian government in 2006. We paid this enormous tax bill. I I had been kicked out of Russia for exposing corruption in companies I invested in. um, After I was kicked out of the country I decided I didn't want to own any more shares in Russia because I thought they might seize them and so we sold all of our shares. We paid a $230 million tax bill and then subsequently my offices were raided, all of our documents were seized, and those documents were then used by a group of corrupt officials and cr- criminals to refund and steal the $230 million of taxes that we paid. Um, and I had a team of lawyers, um, uh, Sergei Magnitsky headed the team, but I had a bunch of other Russian lawyers who, put, who figured out the tax rebate fraud. And, um, and, and Sergei exposed it, and as it was exposed, the Russian authorities went after all of our lawyers. And two of my lawyers um, were summoned to a police station in Kazan, Russia. Kazan is in Tartarstan, which is in the center of Russia, and has a reputation for being one of the most brutal places in the world. And that particular police station had a history of, of, of raping detainees with champagne bottles um, uh, uh, and just the most horrific things. And so when these guys were summoned, these, both these lawyers then um, fled. One of them went east and ended up fleeing through uh, Habarovsk, which is in the Pacific of Russia. And the other one uh, fled through Moscow airport. And both of them safely got out of the country. And Sergei had, had not been summoned yet and, and had not been arrested. And he, he was of the view that um, he had not done anything wrong. And so why should he leave? He was this what I would describe as a stubborn idealist and um, he believed that because he had done nothing wrong that the law would protect him and everything would be fine and so he stayed and he not only stayed but he testified again against the uh, corrupt officials and, and five weeks after his second testimony he um, he was arrested by some of the same officials he testified against, uh, put in pre-trial detention, tortured For 358 days, he was put in cells with um, uh, 14 inmates and 8 beds, and they had to sleep in shifts. They put in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow. So he nearly froze to death. Cells with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They moved him from cell to cell to cell in the middle of the night. And the purpose of all this was to get him to withdraw his testimony against these corrupt police officers and to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million dollars and he did so on my instruction. And Sergei, um, who was a man of unbelievable integrity. For him, the idea of perjuring himself and bearing false witness was more horrifying than any physical pain that they could inflict upon him, refused to do what they said. And so the pressure got worse and worse and more and more intense. He ended up um, getting very sick. He got terrible pains in his stomach, He ended up losing 20 kilos, and he was diagnosed as having uh, pancreatitis and gallstones, um, and needing an operation, um, which was scheduled for the 1st of August, 2009. And about a week before the operation, these same uh, tormentors came to him and said, here's the the, uh, false confession, please sign it. Again, he refused, and in retaliation, they then abruptly moved him to a maximum security prison called Butyrka, which is considered to be one of the most awful prisons in Russia. They threw him into Butyrka, and the most significant thing about Butyrka for Sergei was that there was no medical facilities there to treat his ailments and the situation got worse and worse and worse. Um, he and his lawyers wrote 20 different desperate requests to every different branch of the criminal justice system for medical attention. Every one of their requests was, he was either ignored or in some cases denied in writing. And on the night of November 16th, 2009, Sergei Magnitsky went into critical condition. On that night, um, uh, the Butyrka authorities didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore. They put him in an ambulance and sent him to a different prison that had a medical wing. But when he arrived at this prison, um, uh, instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell and they chained him to a bed and then eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him to death. He was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. That was uh, November 16, 2009, so that was uh, about almost nine years ago.
0: You took it personally. You can hear it. It's still, it's still very deeply ingrained in you, and, and you just you didn't let it lie. What motivated you to, to go to the extreme lengths that you went to thereafter to exact
1: some retribution? Well, um, when I got the news of his murder, it was just the most heartbreaking thing that ever happened in my life. That uh, a man um, who had been working for me in my service um, uh, and had been loyal to me right until the end, um, trying to do the right thing. um, He could have shocked you. He he could have. And I would have Mm. liked him to because he would have been alive still. (laughs) He didn't. And and he died at the age of 37, and he was the most promising, wonderful young man. And he died. He died because of me. And for me, uh, that that weighs on me so heavily, I can't even tell you. And the only way that I can have any psychological peace in my life is to go after the people that killed him and make sure they face justice. And on the the morning when I learned of his death, after the hysteria died down it was obvious to me that i had only one life choice which was use all of my time all of my resources and all of my energies um to go after the people who killed him and i made a vow to him his memory to his family to myself that i was going to do that until i got justice and that's what i've been doing for the last uh last nine years well um so uh, after so we tried to get justice first in Russia, after Sergei was, was murdered. And um, Vladimir Putin personally got involved in circling the wagons, and he personally exonerated everybody involved. Uh, and he even gave honors and promotions to some of the people most complicit. And so I said to myself, we have to find justice outside of Russia. And then I said, well, how do we find justice outside of Russia? And I came up with an interesting idea, which was that, that the people who killed Sergei didn't kill him for ideology or religion, they killed him for money. They killed him for $230 million. And those people who do all these terrible crimes, they don't keep their money in Russia. They keep their money in the West. And so I I took this idea to Washington and I said, let's freeze the assets and ban the visas of the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky. And um, I first took this idea to a democratic senator named Benjamin Cardin. He chaired something called the U.S. Helsinki Commission, which is a U.S. government body that deals with human rights in the former Soviet Union. And he agreed to co-sponsor something which became known as the Magnitsky Act. And, but he said to me, you know, if we want to have any luck in getting this legislation uh, passed, we need a Republican, um, because this is, everything needs to be done bipartisan. And um, he said, go find a Republican. So I looked down the list of senators, um, Republican senators, and there's one name that just jumped right off the page for me, which was Senator John McCain. Um, John McCain, as I think everybody in the world knows, um, before he was a senator, he was a soldier. And when he was a soldier, he was a soldier in Vietnam. He was a pilot, a fighter pilot in Vietnam, and he was shot down. He was put into Vietnamese prison camp for five and a half years, and he was viciously tortured. And I thought to myself, if there's one person in Washington who could truly empathize with the injustice and the horrific abuse that Sergei Magnitsky went through, it was John McCain. And so I, um, it wasn't easy getting an appointment with John McCain. He's one of the most powerful people in the Senate, and I was able them um, through, through all sorts of. Uh, reach out and and um, networking to find somebody who could help me get a meeting with him and I got a 15 minute meeting with John McCain uh in 2010 uh, shortly after Sergey died and and um I went to uh, my meeting with John McCain and and he didn't know what he was meeting with me about he would, you know someone was doing a favor for a friend getting me the meeting and so he sat down as he did he probably he, he has you know probably 25 15 minute meetings a day and uh, he sat down and I started telling him the story and um, and he sta- and, and as I was telling him the story you know you could he was leaning forward he you, you know you could see this deep um, exp- uh, expression of concern on his face and 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 he started asking me questions and I started answering the questions and 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 my 15 minutes was up before I got anywhere in, anywhere n- near into the into the story, and I was really upset that um, I was going to lose my opportunity. And um, and so the fifteen minutes comes up, and the secretary pops her head in and says, "Senator McCain, that you know your next meeting is waiting outside." And he puts his hand up and he says, "No, I've got a, uh, i have got need more time here." And um, and so I kept on telling the story, and she came in again, and and his waiting room and was backing up and backing up with all of his subsequent meetings. And I spent an hour with John McCain that day. And, and he said, oh, "This is the most horrifying story. What can I do?" And I said, "Well, you can co-sponsor the Magnitsky Act." And he said, oh, "Of course, I'll do that." He um, said, well, "What else can I do?" And I said, "Well, uh, I don't know." He said, "Well, I'm going to do anything I can to get help you get justice for Sergei Magnitsky." And um, and then he and, and uh, Senator Cardin um, became my two partners in Washington, and we took this Magnitsky Act from a concept to a uh, uh, to a piece of legislation, which was eventually passed uh, two years later in the Senate, ninety-two to four, eighty-nine percent of the House of Representatives passed it, and and it became law in, on December fourteenth, two thousand twelve. And Vladimir Putin was not happy. Vladimir Putin was not happy. Vladimir Putin was furious. He was so furious because this was um, this basically put his whole business model at risk. Vladimir Putin is a kleptocrat, he does terrible crimes, violent crimes, um, murder, uh, uh, kidnapping, extortion to get money, Um, and then he keeps that money offshore. And the Magnitsky Act basically says anyone who commits human rights abuses in Russia can have their assets frozen offshore. And so he was furious. Um, He had banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families as his first response. He created an anti-Magnitsky list where he put a bunch of US officials uh, as a second response. And then he declared that the repealing the Magnitsky Act was the single most um, important foreign policy priority. And, and he's been running that um, foreign policy priority since then, trying to get the Magnitsky Act repealed. And it's kind of backfired on him because the more he does to try to get it repealed, um, the more other countries, get interested in it, and uh, um, we now have seven countries that have Magnitsky Acts, um, the United States, uh, Canada, UK, um, Latvia, uh, Lithuania, Estonia, Gibraltar, and we have 10 countries that we're now working on the Magnitsky Act, including South Africa. South Africa is now one of the countries that that we're, uh, uh, we're beginning a legislative initiative.
0: And what does it
1: do once it's enacted? It freezes the assets and bans the visas of Russian human rights violators. And I say Russian human rights violators, but actually, in fact, the Magnitsky Act now applies to human rights violators everywhere around the world. It's named after Sergei Magnitsky. It's, of course, focused on Russia, but um, a lot of other bad guys get targeted as well. And so, for example, uh, a few weeks ago, the U.S. just sanctioned uh, a number of uh, Burmese generals that have been involved in the genocide against the Rohingya people. Um, uh, in, in another situation, uh, about a month before that, the U.S. government sanctioned a bunch of uh, Nicaraguan security officials that were responsible for the murder of, of uh, peaceful protesters in Nicaragua. And so this is not just about Russia, but and, and of course every bad guy who gets sanctioned in their governments get furious when it happens, but um, it all comes back to Sergei Magnitsky.
0: I suppose that, the, the obvious question then is why do the Russians, the normal
1: Russian people, tolerate this kind of governance? Well, the, the normal Russian people don't know about this. Um, the reason they don't know about this is that Vladimir Putin is such a bad guy, and such a thin-skinned bad guy, um, that he has basically taken control of all the means of communication in Russia to the people. He controls all the television Controls all the newspaper, controls all the radio, and now they control the internet. And so the message that's being broadcast to the Russians is that Sergei Magnitsky was some terrible crook, and that I'm a terrible crook, and that um, uh, Russia is an a, a innocent victim of these terrible crooks trying to take over their country. What about you? What about your personal security? Well, my my security is is um, certainly at risk. Um, the Russians, you know, I would, I would, I think it's fair to say that I'm Putin's number one foreign enemy. Um, <clears throat> uh, I think that they would like to kill me, but I, I think they'd like to kill me and get away with it, and and they don't want another, you know, Sergei Skripal, Alexander Litvinenko fallout of a situation. And so, um, right now, their strategy has been to arrest me and get me back to Russia, where they can then, you know, kill me quietly um, in their own prisons without anybody being able to prove what they did. So that's their strategy. And so my main my main concern is to not be arrested and sent back to Russia right now. And how do you defend against that kind of powerful opponent? Well, um, uh, I, there are certain countries that have now fully recognized the illegitimacy of Putin's campaign against me. So Britain, where we're sitting right now, uh, the Russians have made 12 attempts to have me arrested um, and extradited and um, every one of those attempts have, has been has failed because the British government protects me. Um, I would say the US government protects me, the Canadian government protects me. If I were to travel to Australia, the Australian government would protect me, and the German government protects me, the Dutch government protects me. But you know, if I travel to um, Thailand, I don't think the Thai government would protect me, or uh, Dubai, I don't think the UAE government would protect me. And so I've got to be very careful about Which countries I travel to, um, which you know leads us back to the beginning of the conversation, where uh, you know South Africa. I don't know. You know. uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping I can come back to South Africa, and I hope that, I mean, it it would seem kind of an obvious rule of law place that I should be okay. But um, at the moment, uh,
0: but it's it's so interesting. There have been many rumors swirling around in South Africa, including well more than rumors, uh, including the that the Russians were given a deal by the former president to build power stations, a trillion rand, which would have literally bankrupted the country. Now, that's off the table. But how, how do you, given your background and your understanding of these things uh, and the public who just hears lots of noise, how do you know what to believe and what not to believe?
1: Well, um, uh, we're in a world of of, of misinformation fake news, real news being described as fake news, and so of course everything is very confusing right now. But the one thing that isn't confusing is that there was a contract signed um, by your former president um, with the Russian um, uh, nuclear energy company, Ross Adam, um, to basically take over the South African energy business which is the most absurd thing uh, you can imagine. Putting aside whether it was cheap or expensive to sign that contract, but one doesn't wanna make yourself beholden to the Russians um, because they misuse that. And, and again, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to, to look back in history and say, well, what, what's happened to the Europeans who were who dependent on, on uh, Russian natural gas? Well, a bunch of times, Russians for political reasons have turned off the gas and a, and a number of countries have frozen in the winter and so the idea that, that, um, that, that South Africans would make themselves beholden, to, I mean, Russia's th- thousands of miles away. It's at like the other end of the planet. To like, give the Russians this kind of sway over, over your country is just absurd. On top of that, I, I, I believe that, the, um, uh, that these contracts were, were never done um, honestly and transparently, and, and there were people who benefited personally from these contracts. I don't know who and I don't know the details because that's how the Russians operate. And if and and the way the Russians operate is they is a is a combination of bribery and blackmail. So they first, you know, are all buddy buddy and friendly and backslapping and and oh my god, you're going to get this and you're going to get that and isn't it great we're going to all do business together. And all of a sudden some politician has got 10 million dollars in a Swiss bank account, and then the Russians start asking them to do stuff that that they're not comfortable doing, and then the Russians say, you know, if you don't do this, um, we're going to expose you, and and not only are we going to expose you, we'll we'll kill you. And so then all of a sudden, these politicians that were feeling all good about themselves with $10 million in their bank account, all of a sudden, are now have to do really horrible things they never intended to do. They thought they were just like signing a nuclear energy deal, and all of a sudden, they're like, you know, beholden to the Russian mafia, which is the Russian government. Hmm. And I've seen this happen in so many different circumstances around the world, it's not just South Africa. Uh, I've seen it happen in Cyprus, I've seen it happen in Switzerland, I've seen it happen in Guatemala, I've seen it happen all over the place, where politicians and and, uh, government officials end up getting sucked into this horrible um, blackmail bribery trap.
0: There is a state capture investigation which has just begun in South Africa, the Zondo Commission, what questions should they be asking? Because given that, that the power utility, Eskom is right at the center of a, a lot of the corruption that went on and the the, the, the linkage that you've, you've just described.
1: Well, I think the, the, the way that one does these investigations is to look at who is making the decisions that were not economically rational and then look at those individuals and and look at their financial affairs and deep, dig deep into their financial affairs to find out if they received any... Um, money from the Russians. Mm-hmm. And it's not all that hard. R- money leaves a permanent indelible trail.
0: Since 2005, when you almost found yourself being flung into a jail in Russia, you managed to, to get out on that trip. Have you ever wanted to go back to the country?
1: Well, I mean, I, I would love to go back if there was a different government that wasn't going to torture and kill me. <laughs> um, you know, I think that, that, that someday the government will change and there might be a you know, a, a, you know, renaissance of democracy and, and goodness at some point. You know, maybe down the road, ten, twenty years. And and so, I would love to go back as a as a friend of Russia who tried to make it better um, with, when there's a friendly government. But in the meantime, I'm staying as far away from there as possible.
0: Are there other friends of Russia in in, in during apartheid South Africa? There were many anti-apartheid uh, activists. Are there are there other people who are activists like you are?
1: Yeah, all over the place, I mean, the, 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 and growing. The, I mean, everybody sees what's going on there. And so there's a lot of Russians who are outside of Russia who are, who are active in this uh, area. There's a lot of Russians inside of Russia who are quietly active in this area, just like the whole apartheid story. And uh, there's actually a, an interesting South African connection to my campaign for justice for Sergei Magnitsky that I, since we're talking to a South African audience here, which was that shortly after Sergei was killed, I was in Cape Town, and I was um, uh, watching, and I, and I brought a bunch of um, human rights movies on disc. This was back in the days when we still had C, uh, DVDs. And one of the movies that I watched um, was Cry Freedom, which was the story of Steve Biko. And I watched this movie and I thought, this has just got unbelievable parallels with what happened to Sergei Magnitsky. He was, uh, I mean, the the murder in, 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 in uh, custody, the cover-up of the murder who was the, the exposure of the cover-up and um, uh, and after the movie I was so moved by it that I, I like went on to uh, Wikipedia to look up the characters and, and the main character had passed away from um, uh, he had died of cancer but the other character who was, wasn't in the movie but was a central person exposing the Steve Biko story was um, Helen Zilli. And, and so I wrote her. A, 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 I typed up a, a letter to her and said, I'm, "I'm going to be in South Africa for three more days." And I, I t- told her the story. Sergei Magnitsky, is there any way we could meet? And at this time, she was the um, uh, she was the governor of of or the, uh, uh, this, the of the uh, Cape Province, and uh, and so she's a pretty important person, um, busy person. But she got my letter and, and she said, um, "Absolutely, we can meet." And so she came over to my house. And we spent the whole morning together and talking about um, fighting for justice, and 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 she was the one who said that you know that the the thing that changed everything in the apartheid uh, the anti-apartheid movement was U.S. sanctions, and that was, that was always the the thing that stuck in my mind when I then went to um, fight for sanctions, which eventually passed and eventually became a, a huge part of our story. And so, in a certain way, my story is very much connected to the anti-apartheid story and the. Uh, Coming from from one of the main activists, and from your perspective, how long will you be on this path for? I think this is my life now. I mean, it's not just it's not just about Sergei Magnitsky anymore. There's a lot of other victims who come to me with with horrific stories, and and we now have created a tool which we can use to right some wrongs. And so I think I'm you know I found my new profession, which is uh, as a justice activist. <laughs>
0: Fascinating story, isn't it? Bill Browder, one of the bravest men I know, his book Red Notice reads, How I became Putin's number one enemy. This has been The Rational Perspective. Until the next time, cheerio.